What I'd like to do this evening, we've been making our account, making our way, I should say, through 1 Kings. And I'd like to read to you the entire chapter since we can do that. And we will also be taking communion this evening together. Looking forward to that as well. And so let's just take a look at chapter 3. And just a quick synopsis of the last chapter we looked at, chapter 2. David, we know in the 10th verse of chapter 2, David finally goes home to be with the Lord after his 70 years of life and 40 years in ministry. And, um, and as David is on his deathbed, he tells his son Solomon, who was going to be the heir to his throne, even though Adonijah, uh, David's fourth son, that he had given birth to, or that his, one of his wives gave birth to, when he was in Hebron, uh, before he began his reign in Jerusalem, uh, Adonijah was fourth in line. And actually, uh, because Absalom had been murdered by David's nephew, uh, Joab, uh, it would make Adonijah the heir apparent to the throne. But one of the things that we know that David didn't do was, for some reason, he didn't broadcast the fact that God had told him very specifically that Solomon would be his heir to the throne. It wouldn't be Adonijah. In fact, I would encourage you to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, specifically verses 12 through 16, and that is what we call the Davidic covenant. It's a promise that God made to David that through his seed, um, that they would not cease to be a king upon the throne of Judah if they continued to obey God's commandments and his laws and his statutes. And in that uh, in that time of God speaking to David, he not only told David that that would happen, and it would actually come from somebody who had not been born yet, or, or somebody that would be born other than his six initial sons. So we know that God was not speaking of David's six initial sons from six different wives. From the past, it would be through Bathsheba, because God was speaking about seed that would be raised up after him. And so that did happen, and we know that that was, and God even called him by name. And we don't find that in 2 Samuel 7, honestly. We have to go to Chronicles and find out uh, that that's, God told him more, the more of the uh, dialogue that, or, or the monologue, <laughs> the command that God had given to David, more of that is recorded in Chronicles than it is in 2 Samuel 7. So when you put the two pieces together, and we looked at this last week, you kind of get a bigger picture of what God spoke to David specifically. And that's always important to do because Chronicles, if you remember, First and Second Chronicles is predominantly uh, the, the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. Okay, of, of certainly Saul and then David and Solomon and then the kings through the line of Judah. Chronicles is not so much concerned about the evil kings of the north. None of them were good. Most of the kings in the south were bad. Only a handful of them were really good. And so when we, as we get into kings, we also see this um, unfortunate thing that happens within the uh, rule of man is that it doesn't really get better. You know, and, and it's just it's so important for us to learn from these these kings and, and, and the times that they lived in because 
uh, we're living in desperate times now, and it's more important for our light to shine even brighter and, and greater now than it ever has been. And so it really behooves us to really dig into the Lord right now and to really seek Him and to be in His Word daily and allow Him to transform our lives that we could be ambassadors and uh, lights in the world that we live in. The world really needs to see Christians, number one, not being fearful. They need to see us believing what we read. And they need to see us growing. And, and I believe that God is doing that in all of us. And that's what we need to do. We need to continue to press forward toward the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Just as Paul reached for that, that, uh, that crown, we got to do the same thing. We can't give up. We can't get lazy in this time that we're living. We have to press forward unlike ever before. Unlike ever before. We need to really make our calling and our election sure. And so... David passes away, and before he passes away, he tells his son uh, some specific things about specific people. Number one, uh, he speaks about Adonijah, that something should happen to him because he killed, or he, he came after the king, you know, to, um, to depose him. And we know that, he, that that's worthy of, of death. And also, um, David informed Solomon of Abiathar the priest, who was a confederate with Adonijah, and, that was, and he was a high priest. And so he informed David of these things. And also he informed of Joab, how Joab, because he had killed and murdered Abner and Amasa, one of David's nephews again, that he needs to be held accountable for his murder because he murdered these men in peacetime. It wasn't in a war battle sequence. This was people of his own uh, house, in a sense, that he murdered with cold blood. And also Shimei, David warned him, warned him of Shimei. He was the man who threw uh, rocks and dust at David as David was fleeing in exile when Absalom was in Jerusalem and seeking to overthrow David. And so David basically tells them all of these things. And in chapter 2, we see the fruition of those things. We see that Adonijah is indeed uh, executed by Solomon for, these, for this treasonous thing that he did, trying to overthrow his father. And also Adonijah wanted uh, David's uh, handmaid, Abishag, uh, the young lady who was a virgin, who was also keeping David at warm at night, because David was old and he couldn't keep warm. And that was just a custom of the day. There was nothing weird about that. We, we kind of look and go, what? But that was kind of the thing back then. And so he had, Solomon had Adonijah killed for his crimes. He had Abiathar, the high priest, exiled for his treachery. And certainly he had Joab executed uh, for his crimes. And Shimei, he didn't execute Shimei because Shimei just basically profaned the king and really blasphemed against him. Um, and... Some might see that as worthy of death. David was just going to let him go, but Solomon put uh, Shimei on a very, uh, put him under house arrest, basically, and told him if he left Jerusalem for any reason that he would be killed. And so a couple years goes by, Shimei forgets all about it. He goes after, the, we looked at this last week, and violates that command, and finally he's executed. And in the process of all that, what we see is that the, 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 the things, uh, the Things that were going on in David's life during his reign were kind of being rectified. And for some reason, David didn't fix those things while he was on the throne, which I find a little bit uneasy. Um, 
But such is uh, some of the character traits of David. We know that in his reign, he didn't deal with things the way he probably ought to. He was kind of aloof as a father, and he wasn't very quick to address his sons when they went astray and when they did wrongful things. He wasn't the one to bring them to task, and so he tells Solomon to do it. And so he does. And Solomon takes care of these things. But let's go ahead and read chapter 3 now. And it says, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. And then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. And meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And at Gibeon, or at Gibeon excuse me, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. And you have continued this great kindness for him, and you have gotten him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be uh, numbered or counted. And therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon asked, had asked this thing. And then God said to him, And I'd put an asterisk by this if I were you. Because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you, and I love that. I'm I'm ready to launch on this because this is just so wonderful, and I love this. See, I have already... given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And also I have given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. And so if, you might want to underline the word if, So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then, underline the word then, because that if-then statement, we'll come back to that. Then I will lengthen your days. And then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And notice, he can't put another asterisk by this, because we're going to uh, look at this. And he came, to, he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the Ark of the Covenant, because he was in Gibeon, remember, now he's in Jerusalem. He came back to Jerusalem, he stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and he offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. So why don't we stop there and actually get into it, and we'll look at a demonstration of Solomon's wisdom 
here shortly. But let's go back to verse 1 here, because it says that Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, and this Pharaoh was probably uh, a Pharaoh by the name of Simon of the 21st dynasty. I know that means a great deal to you, um, but that's who he was in history, in case you want to look him up. Uh, Simon, S-I-A-M-O-N, of the 21st dynasty. And one, one thing we have to understand is that when kings made treaties with other kings of other nations, typically what they would do is they would marry one another, like, meaning the, the king would marry the daughter of the king, other king, and that king, would his son, would marry the daughter of, you know, vice versa. And they would do that for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, to uh, supply assurances, because you're less likely to go against that land if you know your son or daughter is, is over there in that country. And it also it just provides some, uh, promotes solidarity really between the nations involved there. And so Solomon unfortunately did this a lot. And we're going to see later on how this got him into trouble because he had a thousand women in his life, 700 wives, and 300 concubines. I mean, think of how embarrassing that would be going through the, the palace and seeing. One of, the, one of the ladies, one of the thousand, walking by, and you're like, is it, is it, is it Mary? Is it uh, Jessica? And she's like, no, it's, it's, you know, Hannah or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, he'd have to remember all those names. Uh, probably, he didn't, probably didn't try, I don't know. But uh, a thousand women, think, think about that. Now, ladies, think about this. Let me just turn the table a little bit. How would you like to have a thousand husbands? A thousand, uh, seven hundred husbands and uh, three hundred cocky husbands. How would you feel about? Well, one thing that would be really good is that all of your painting in your house and all your fixtures would work really well because they're great plumbers, and all everything would be done. The garbage would be taken out, the laundry would be done. But think of a, a thousand women. Do you think that was the Lord? I don't think it was. I can tell you that it wasn't, because we'll look at that. But this was the beginning by Solomon go, you know, doing this kind of thing, and he would make these kind of arrangements with other kings of other nations, and, 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 uh, and then he would multiply wives even on top of that. But this would be a harbinger, if you will, of what would ultimately cause Solomon's downfall. And yet, uh, God's grace, he was, he was merciful to Solomon, as was his promise that God had given to David concerning Solomon. Let me just read to you. you. You can put it in the margin of your Bible, but it's the Davidic covenant again. Right in your margin, right off to this verse, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, 12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. This is the Davidic covenant. And this is what it says. God speaking here says, When your days are fulfilled, David, because God is talking to David through Nathan, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and from, with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Notice that. And God was faithful to his promise because as we get further along into Solomon's reign, we're going to see him doing these very things that God had, um, had warned him about, had actually had warned the children of Israel about before they even came into the promised land. And we'll take a look at that. But he says that um, 
And your house and your kingdom uh, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That's God's promise uh, to David. And he's coming through on this promise by having Solomon on the throne. But he warned Solomon. He warns Solomon, and David, even before he, um, before he dies, he warns Solomon about this very thing. But as we said before, he had a thousand wives, and uh, you might want to write in your margin again another scripture reference. It's in 1 Kings, it's in this book, chapter 11, the first 13 verses. We're going to look at that real quick, because we're going to see as as. Solomon takes Pharaoh's daughter to be his wife. Again, this is a foreshadowing of what was going to come. Uh, and unfortunately, it didn't end well for Solomon. And you all know that through history. But notice what it says in 1 Kings 11, beginning in chapter 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. Women of the Moabites. Now, I want you to remember this. Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Write another reference down in your margin. And this is one that I've referred to a lot as we've been going through Samuel. And even now, it's a very significant Passage of Scripture. It's Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. This is one of those passages. We're just going to uh, pause here in the middle of 1 Kings 11 because I have to share this with you. Because it tells, God says why he doesn't want them to intermingle with these foreign uh, uh, pagan nations. But he also says, he, he, he tells them why. And the consequence of it, or what's going to come of it if you do. Notice in verse 16 in Deuteronomy 20. But of the cities, and remember, God is giving to Moses this to share with the children of Israel before they even come into the promised land. And God says, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall not let anything, nothing that breathes, remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, or the Hittite. Remember we just read about, read about that? Those are one of the wives that Solomon took to be his wife. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusite. And um, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, and here's the reason why God didn't want it. Was he just a mean God who didn't want people to enjoy themselves? God is not racist, he is not racist, but what he is, he cares about sin. And when he sees a group of people, the Canaanites, who are ripe for judgment, and God was bringing his people in as a judgment against them, why? Just because they were Canaanites and he didn't like Canaanites? It had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with sin. They continued in their sin for so long, God used his own people as the hammer of judgment. But what happened? We know what happened. They didn't completely drive out the inhabitants of the land. They did a lot, but they, they, they let some things, uh, they didn't finish the job, and it created problems for them. And here is proof positive that this is happening even right now, that they weren't faithful in driving out those inhabitants. So let's go back to 1 Kings and continue in, chat, in verse 3. It says, and, and it speaks of uh, Solomon, that he had 700 wives. So we're back in 1 Kings 11, verse 3. So Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives, notice, turned away his heart. 
That's exactly what God warned him about. Why do you think the word of God is so rich like this? Because it makes us accountable by the things that we read. And Solomon was accountable to this because it had been read to him many times. As a young man coming up, he would have read this. His dad would have read this to him. The Israelites knew this, but notice, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the, father, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Now let me ask you a question. We know of of David's faults. We read about them. But here's the thing about David. When David made a mistake, he turned from his sin. He owned it. When he was finally busted, one time he, you know, it caught up to him, and the other time he just confessed it right out, and he confessed his sin, and it changed him. He, he wasn't quite the same man, but he had a depth of character in, in, in his faith with God because he had went through this horrible emotional roller coaster of being at the very heights with God and at the very depths of despair. And that's why we get some of the most wonderful psalms that we have, because they're very real to us. They're very real to us because at some point in our lives, we're going to come across many of these things that David went through. But David wasn't a perfect man, but when he did mess up, he repented and his heart was back on the Lord. That's why God could say, he's a man after my own, God, after my own heart. Doesn't that encourage you? It ought to because if you're like me, you've made mistakes, you've sinned, you've messed up sometimes. And to know that this man really, really did some horrible things, and yet this man is in heaven. He's in heaven, and we're going to see him. I'm more looking forward to seeing Jesus, but I can't wait to hang out with David. If I'll even be able to stand in line, I don't know, maybe there'll be a line at the, initially, you know, but I think we'll look at things differently then. But the thing is, I, I'm looking forward to talking to him. David, what was it like? How did, you, how did you deal with that? And maybe he'll just say, you know what, that's water under the bridge, brother. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't know what he's going to say, but it doesn't matter. But notice, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, which is the Mount of Olives, by the way. And on the hill that, uh, there it is, I'm sorry. And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods, lowercase g. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my commandment and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servants. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days. For the sake of your father, David. You see God being faithful to his promise? Is he a covenant-keeping God when he makes a promise? Is he going to back out of it? Is he going to renege on that promise? No, he's going he's to follow through on the promises that he has made. That's who he is. 
He says, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe, Judah, to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And so we're going to see that as we go along the consequences. But polygamy, we have to understand, occurred at this time. And it was a very common thing in the Middle East and in the Near East, but it was not God's will. It was not his will. He allowed it, but it was not his will. At all. It was always God's will for there to be one man and one woman. In Mark chapter 10, verse 6, it says, But from the beginning, Jesus said, of the creation, God made them male and female. Here, quoting from Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. A man and a woman. That's God's order. That's God's definition of marriage. That's his definition. That's my definition of marriage. And that's the definition of marriage, period, to everyone who lives on the earth. Can I hear an amen? Yes. Between one man and one woman, there's peace and there's joy. There really is, even after 25 years. Yeah. So it's a wonderful thing. But notice verse 2 back in our text. It says, Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places... Because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now, the high places were where people would sacrifice to their false gods. The ancient Canaanites believed that the higher they were in elevation, the closer they were to the heavens, the more that they would worship up there, the more likely their God would not only hear them, but answer them as well. And if you believe that about your God, if you've got to, if you've got to ascend to a high mountain in order for God to hear you, you might want to switch gods. You might want to change God. You might want to go get your money back and change to a different God because your God is not who God should be and who God really is, right? But the true worshipers of God, they were to worship in the place where God had called them to and not in an unsanctified place because the Canaanites and the pagans, they worshiped on those high hills and those high places. They sacrificed their children to these false gods that were mentioned earlier, Milcom and Shemosh and Ashtaroth and all these other gods. And even though they might not have been doing it at this time, the children of Israel were still, because it was a place of worship, they would go up there because the temple hadn't been built. The, the, the tabernacle was in Israel at that time. But they should have worshipped there. But they chose the high places. And they continued to worship God, but not in the way he prescribed. And I find it interesting that we don't see God really... Um, he allowed them to do that for a season. But the tabernacle of meeting that Moses built... Uh, at this time in uh, Solomon's life was in Gabeon uh, at that time. And David, remember, had brought the ark out of the tabernacle and he had brought it to Jerusalem for a tabernacle that he had built for it. Because uh, Moses' tabernacle was several hundred years old, probably falling apart, not in that good of a shape. David, when he comes into his, his reign, obviously before Solomon, he brings the ark out of that ta old tabernacle, brings it into a new tabernacle that he made in Zion, which is just uh, southwest of the Temple Mount. So Zion is right here, and this up here is the Temple Mount today. And in fact, if you go to Israel with us uh, next year, next March, Lord willing, 
you'll, you'll see what they've uncovered. They, they just started uncovering this about 10 years ago, and they've uncovered David's palace and everything. It's all there. You can see the remnants of that stuff there. But that was Mount Zion. That was Zion, and that's where David had the Ark of the Covenant. That's where he had the tabernacle that he had built before Solomon, his son, had built the temple, which we all know was one of the greatest wonders of the world. But there was a place that they were to worship. And again, I'm making a big deal about these high places that the children of Israel, including Solomon, it says uh, in Exodus 20, 24, it says, God says, an altar of earth you shall make for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen and every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. So there was a specific place that God wanted his name to be placed and for him to be worshipped. A specific place. And I think you know what that is. Can anybody tell me what it is? Take a wild guess. Jerusalem. Yes, it's Jerusalem. In your margin, write down Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to read this to you. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall, carefully be, shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess in all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy, notice, all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. All those places, I want you to destroy them on all the high mountains and on the high hills under every green tree, and you shall destroy their altars. You shall break their sacred pillars and burn their wooden images, which is the, the image of Ashtoreth, with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods, destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, your vowed things, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all in which he has put in your hand, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall not do as we are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for as yet... You have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he, he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you shall dwell in safely, safety, excuse me, then there shall be the place which the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings, your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, the Levites who are within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. In one of your tribes... And who was that tribe? Judah. And there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do what all that I command you. And so it really couldn't be any clearer than that. And finally, uh, write this reference down, Second Chronicles chapter 6. 
verse 5 and 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. Let me read it to you, because it gets even clearer now. If that wasn't clear enough, he specifies uh, exactly where now. He says, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So the people of God were to hallow that place of Jerusalem. They weren't to go anywhere else and worship anywhere else. And yet Solomon, even Solomon, and, 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 and you know he he would work. He's, and we're going to see he's going to slaughter a, a thousand oxen up at this high place in Gibeon. And you know what I find remarkable is that the Lord met him there. And the Lord, the first thing that out of the Lord's mouth wasn't David. Why are you doing this? What's the matter with you? Don't you know better? I mean, God didn't browbeat him. In fact, you know what God did give him? A blank check. <laughs> he gave him a blank check. He, wrote, he signed his name at the bottom of the check. He dated it and he handed it to him. He says, whatever you want, it's yours. <laughs> How amazing is that? Is that grace? Is that gra- Are you kidding me? Grace in the Old Testament? Wasn't the God of the Old Testament this angry man in the clouds somewhere with a, with a, with a gavel who can't... He just, he, Waiting to smash somebody. Boy, if they mess up again, I'm just going to... Is that who he is? No, it's not. Quite the opposite, actually. There is so much grace in the Old Testament, if you will just look for it. It's all over the place. Yes, God is... There's a time when he says, okay, it's gone far enough and I must act. But until the time that God acts... All that time in between is grace and mercy. But because he is a God of grace and mercy, he has to judge when he judges. But he doesn't do it on a whim. He's not a capricious God like the God of Islam who just will smite you just because you're, a, you're an infidel, just because you don't belong to Islam and you won't convert. Well, I'm just going to have you killed. God is not like that. God is not capricious. In his love. He is very determined. He's very focused. He's very benevolent. And he's very patient. And he's very gracious. And I love that about God because he's been so patient with me. And I know he's been patient with you. Hasn't he been gracious and patient with you? Think of all the things that you've gone through and the things that you know you should have been hammered for. And he didn't hammer you. He didn't even allow you to be found out when you were worried about being found out about something that you did. You know, the Lord could have told my mother 20 years ago, or more than that, 30 years ago, 35, almost 40 years ago, she could have told him, uh, Jan, your son was the one who set that pine forest on fire in Michigan. Yes, it was my, my friend and I. Here's a confession, but the statute of limitations is over now. But, you know, but, but then I tell my mother this, you know, a couple, a couple years ago, you know, I'm like, Mom, you remember that fire? And God could have told her I got away with it, right? And I told my mom, she goes, that was you? She remembers very well, you know. And I thought to myself, oh, God, you know, you could have, you could have busted me. I could have been in some serious trouble. And I, I wonder if I should edit this afterwards. No, just kidding. <laughs> Someone's going to turn that over to the Michigan State of Police and be like, uh, Mr. Kellogg, you're going to jail. Um, 
No, but, you know, friends, kids, we play with fire and we shouldn't, and that's a, that's a good thing for kids not to do, right? So I was proof text of what not to do. But God could have done that. He could have done that, but he didn't do it. He was so gracious, and he always is. And I love this, that, you know, the people of God, they are supposed to hallow that place. Just like, I mean, this is not a temple, but it's a place that we worship, and we should hallow this place. You should hallow every place that you go. As a Christian, you walk on holy ground when you go to work. Right? It's not just this building. But you know what? While we're here, we respect what this building is for, what this part of the building is for. We come to worship God. We come to learn more of Him. But you know what? He, he wants us to worship Him wherever we're at. It could be in your car. That could be your holy time in, the, in your car. It could be out in the woods going for a hike. Just don't set the woods on fire, for heaven's sake. And blame it on me. But in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, he exhorts the believers. He says, but sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts. And so that's what he tells the children of Israel. Set aside this place. This place, I'll call it by name, Jerusalem. Mount Moriah, the same place where Abraham offered up or attempted to offer up Isaac. The same place that Jesus would be crucified on. That same mountain range, that same mountain area would be the same place. But notice verse 3 back in our text. But Solomon loved the Lord. In the Hebrew, there's only one word for love. It's called Ahab. It's where we get our, or Ahav. Remember Ahava products from the Dead Sea? That's where they get this from. When you buy Dead Sea products, you're loving yourself because you're smearing that black mud all over your, you know, those Dead Sea um, minerals all over your, your thing and you let it dry and then you rinse off and you got like baby skin. It really does work, by the way. Um, but that's the, the Hebrew language only has one word for love. But in Greek, there are many. So in Hebrew, they know by the context of the passage or the conversation what kind of love you're talking about. And we do too in America. You know, I could say I love my car and I love my wife and I love God. You know that I mean three different types of love. And I also love, you know, um, Brussels sprouts, uh, bo- uh, you know, um, in the oven. You know, uh, what's that? Is it? It's not broiled, is it? Roasted with uh, spices on them. And they get, they're really, it's really great. You got to try it. But I love that. But you know the difference in context of what I'm talking about. But all they had in Hebrew was ahab. But Solomon loved the Lord, and he walked in the statutes of his father, except, notice, notice that, except, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense to high places. And notice how kind God was to him. You know, and, um, you know, Solomon was doing really well, but he wasn't being obedient completely. But do you see God just striking him with a whip? You don't see it, do you? He gets his attention, and he comes around, and we're going to see that in verse 15. Because we'll see an interesting development in verse 15. You might even want to circle verse 15 and compare it with um, verse 3. I think it's verse 3. Yes. Or verse 5, actually. So anyway, let, let's go on here. So now the king of, uh, went to Gibeon. Notice this high place where the pagans used to worship. And he went to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Now, there is a lot of history going back uh, concerning this place called Gibeon. It goes all the way back to Joshua 9. 
Um, you can you know, footnote that and go take a look at that. We're not going to go through this. But this place, Gibeon, was about six to eight miles northwest of Jerusalem today. And today it's known as the town of El-Jib. And um, Gibeon or, uh, was a high place, a place of worship, as you know. And at that time, uh, the altar of Bezalel, or Bezalel that um, made the bronze altar for Moses, that was there at that time in Gibeon. But notice verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? He didn't get on his case about his... Not obedient, you know, being disobedient. And notice that Solomon did not initiate this. God did. Which leads me to something that I want to encourage you with tonight. Because oftentimes you hear people saying, well, the Lord spoke to me. And maybe he did. Maybe he did. But when God is willing and when he's ready to really speak into your life, he has no problem doing it. You've got to understand that. So don't think that, well, I haven't heard from him in a long time, therefore I must be hard of hearing. I must be, there must be sin in my life. And, and who knows, maybe there is. You know, but the thing is, is God, do you think there was sin in Solomon's life? He wasn't a perfect man. And is God able to speak into his life at a specific moment? At any time God wants to, believe me, he can use a dream. He can use, speak to your heart. He can use somebody else even. But he will more than likely speak to you directly through his word, through just a still, small voice. He'll, he will do it in a way that it'll be undeniable. I've known this because out of all of my 52 years of my life, I have noticed God there have been years in between of him really giving me very clear direction. But in every area of my life where there were big decisions that needed to be made, he showed up, and oftentimes unexpectedly, and did things, and I knew it was him. I just knew it was him, and I acted upon it, and it was him. And it went against all odds. It went against all odds. So believe, don't believe me. Believe God that when he is able and when he's ready to speak to you, he will. Just say, Lord, I want to be listening. And even if you're not listening, I believe God, when he wants to, he can make it very clear to you. So don't punish yourself and think, well, I'm not, nothing, I haven't heard God speak to me in really a, quite a long time, you know, in a very profound way. You know, he may speak to you through your word, but I'm talking about like lightning things, you know, where he just like redirects your life. Don't worry about that. The same thing happened to Moses. You know how long he was in the desert following Jethro, his, his, his father-in-law's sheep, before God spoke to him through the burning bush? Forty years. Forty years. And there was nothing. He was doing the mundane things. Nothing. And then all of a sudden, boom, I want you to go take my people out of Egypt. What? I'm 80 years old. You know, Medicare's kicking in. I can't go now. And God's going, no, go. But God loves Solomon. And I'll prove it to you. Write down this verse, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. This is what it says. David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. 
The Lord just says it. He loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, because of the Lord. The Lord loved him. And do you think the Lord knew that Solomon was going to get to this place at the end of his, end of his reign where he would kind of go off the reservation? God knew that. Did it stop God from loving him? I mean, seriously, this is the way you have to think about this stuff because that encourages me because God knows all things. He's already seen Solomon's life before even David was born. He's, he already knew the end from the beginning. And yet God says, I love you, Solomon. And God didn't say, I know what you're going to do in the latter part of your reign. You're going to walk away from me. Now Solomon did turn around. That's what Ecclesiastes is all about. Ecclesiastes was like, I've been a fool all my life. Worship God. He came around. God brought him around and his testimony is Ecclesiastes. But he knew this about Solomon, and yet he loved him, just like he loves you, regardless of the things that you've done or the things that you will do in the future. He knows that, and yet he loves you now. Let that be a great stake in the ground of your faith, and let it encourage you. But I want to also uh, in- encourage you to be careful about dreams. Now, God met Solomon in this dream, in this pagan place, this high place in Gibeon. He met him there and basically told him, what what do you want, Solomon? But be careful about dreams. There are a lot of dreams that God gave to people in the Bible. I think of Abraham. I think of Jacob. I think of Joseph, Jacob's son. I even think of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who I believe came to faith in Christ. And then Joseph, Jesus' earthly caretaker, his earthly father, if you will. And then the wise men who came from the east. These men were given direction by God through dreams. But be very careful about dreams because if they don't match up with what is in the word of God, you must be very careful. Because people receive dreams from demonic things, demonic beings, saying do this or do that, and they wake up, oh, it must be God, it was a dream. Not necessarily. But if you act upon what, and, and, and what God wants you to do, if it violates any part of the word of God, it was not from God. I don't care what you think about it. If it's of him, it's going to line up with the scripture. It's not going to violate anything in the scripture. I can tell you that. Because God will not violate his word. You can take that to the bank. Right? So verse 6 in our text. So Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father. And he basically goes through this. We've already read this. You know, you've done all this great kindness for my father and for me, and now, O oh Lord my God, verse 7, you've made, an all, you know, made me servant instead of my, you know, my father, but I'm a little child. When, when he says this, he was really somewhere around 20 years old, uh, Solomon, okay? But he's basically saying, I'm inexperienced. You know, I came into this with a silver spoon. You know, everything was provided for me. I didn't have to do anything. My, day, my dad, he, he, he had the, all the materials, all the workmen were in place, all the ministries, the blueprint, everything. And I just sat there and watched as they did it. He goes, but I don't know how to come out or to come in. And your servants in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And it seems that God could scarcely resist this sequest. Think about that. As Solomon is speaking, God's heart is just jumping. He's like, are you kidding me, Solomon? Of course, God knew this. But to hear it come from his own heart, 
saying, you know what, Lord, I, I, he didn't ask for money. And so notice, then God said, because you've asked for this thing, you've not asked for long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you've asked for your understanding or to discern justice. Behold, I have given you a why. Notice, I love this. Underline that. I have given you. Underline that in verse 12. I have given you. I've already done it, Solomon. Probably even before you even spoke these words, I had already planted the seed in your heart. But I'm going to tell you right now that from this point going forward, you're going to be the wisest man that has ever walked the face of the earth except for my son Jesus. Think about that. He was not only the wealthiest man. Jeff Bezos has nothing. Elon Musk has nothing on Solomon. Solomon, the richest man that ever walked the earth the wisest man that also walked the earth, who fell into his own folly, unfortunately. And God says, because you've said this, you haven't asked for all these things, I'm going to give you a wise and understanding heart. And I'm also going, uh, and there's no one going to come after you who's been anything like you. And I love what it says in Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the reverence. And yes, even the fear of God. I think, you know, fear can be like, I'm afraid. Yes, if you don't know Christ, you should be afraid. But you need to come to him. <laughs> he doesn't want you to be afraid to come to him. But if you're an enemy of God, be very afraid. But once you're his, oh my goodness. <laughs> what an awesome thing. But the fear of the Lord, the reverence, the awe, and yes, even the fear of him is the beginning of wisdom. It shapens me up, doesn't it? It makes me want to suck in my gut and, and put, put in my, you know, and tuck in my shirt and, and like, yes, sir. <laughs> you know? In Proverbs 1, um, the Proverbs of the Lord, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom. Oh, my goodness, there's, uh, time is flying by here. I would encourage you to read all of Proverbs chapter 9. Put that in your, in your Bible. Put that in your Bible, excuse me. But what we need today are leaders filled with wisdom, because not those who just have a head filled with knowledge, but those who have wisdom, because wisdom, or excuse me, knowledge is not good enough, and that's what Solomon asked for. I want to be a man of understanding. I want to have wisdom. Many people can have knowledge. You can read, any, anybody can read a book and gain knowledge, but wisdom is something completely altogether different. Knowledge, um, uh, anyone can have a lot of knowledge, but knowledge that is obtained by truth and in the truth is especially valuable because wisdom is a gift from God and it is how one uses knowledge. I can have all the knowledge, but how to apply that knowledge? I need wisdom from God on how to do that. And we're going to see an example of that before we take communion. I know I'm going uh, on the verge of going too long here. But notice in verse 13, he says, And I have also given you what you've not asked for, riches and honor, so that there shall be not anyone like you among all the kings all your days. And so notice, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes, uh, Solomon, and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. That is what we call a conditional promise. There's a condition. Whenever you see if and then, those two words, that's a condition. If you do this, then I will do this. Now, God has given so many unconditional promises that have nothing to do with our performance. He told Abraham in Genesis 15, Abraham, and it was an unconditional promise, this is what I'm going to do in your life and through your seed, period. And then he put him to sleep. <laughs> Probably a good thing. You're going to take a nap now. 
I'm going to make this covenant between you and I, and I'm going to be the one who's going to walk through those pieces. I'm going to make that blood, that covenant, that blood covenant. I'm going to make it, God says. You're going to be asleep. I'm not, you're not having anything to do with it. Unconditional promises. But this is not one of those. It's a conditional promise. And because of Solomon's disobedience, notice he died before reaching his 70th birthday. So then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and I'd have you underline or circle this verse here, because notice what happened. Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and notice, he was in Gibeon, about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. He wakes up from there, and then he comes to Jerusalem, so he comes back down south to Jerusalem, and he stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and notice what he did. He offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all of his servants. Notice that he left Gibeon, this place of um, idolatry that God didn't want him to worship. And yet he sacrificed a thousand animals at that altar. And God didn't you know, beat him up over it. But after that meeting with God, what does he do? He comes right back to Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant is and where the other altar and the other things there that David had put in the tabernacle that he had erected for it, and he worshiped there. And from that moment onward, that would be where he would worship. It just set him back on, 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 on his way. Now, let's look at verse 16 through the rest of the chapter. And this is just a quick... Um, demonstration of what God had said. Remember, he said, I've already placed this within you, Solomon. And I love that because I believe that when God saves you, he places everything within you that he is, he, everything that you need is, is, is there. And he's just, he's going to operate on it when he sees fit. And as our faith grows, he's going to, he's given us everything, folks. Don't you think that's wonderful? I think that's wonderful. He's given you everything. It's like a seed that's just germinating there, waiting for the right moment. And he's, he, he planted that seed there. And now he's going to put it into action. So, verse 16. We're just going to read this through and then we'll take communion. Notice, now two women who are harlots, think of that. Two prostitutes come before the king. Wow. And they came to the king and they stood before him. And the one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. And then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And here we are together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So the one woman ro rolled over on her son in the middle of the night, smothered him and killed him. And so she arose in the middle of the night and she took my my son from my side, and while your maidservant slept and, and, and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom, and when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not the son who I had born. She knew instinctively a mother knows when she sees her child. And when I arose, uh, okay, I read that, um, verse 22. So then the other woman said, no. But the living son is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. And thus they spoke before the king. Can you understand the dilemma is here? One person's word against another person's word. And they both are pretty uh, sketchy individuals. And now it's just word against word, word against word. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, that's when wisdom comes. Hmm. And the king said... This one says, 
This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought the king a sword, a sword before the king, and, he, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. And then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king. And I can imagine her at this point, her chest is heaving with emotion, thinking to herself, I know that that's my son. But in order to fix this dilemma, the king's going to cut my son in, in half and give, and the child's dead. What good is a half a child dead to me? And the real mother does the unthinkable. But any one of you probably would have done it as well. All you mothers, I love this instinct that God has given you, this maternal instinct. It is so wonderful. It is such a wonderful gift. Never, ever Think twice about it. When, when you get a funny feeling in your gut about something and when it comes to your child, you listen to that. I've seen my wife do that and God just, he, he, it's, it's a mystery to me. And I'm, I don't have, you know, the X, you know, I'm not an X chromosome. I got an XY chromosome and, and I'm going, why, why, why? And, and God is doing all this stuff in her and I'm, I'm blown away by what the, the instinct that, that God gives to women So divide the child with a, with a sword. Give one half to her and one half to her. End of subject. Next case, right? <laughs> then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, and I can just see her filled with emotion. She yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, Oh, Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, No, let him neither live, you know, let him neither be mine nor yours, but divide him in half. And so the king answered and says, Give the woman who uh, the, the, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king. They reverenced him, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And this is what is so beautiful. The natural inclination, the natural maternal, maternal instinct of a woman comes out, and Solomon says, that's the woman whose, whose child it is. She's willing to give up her son to not have him killed. Isn't that the greatest thing? Isn't that an act of worship, really? That's huge. She may never see that son again. She's willing to give him up to, and, and rather than have him be killed and not have him. She would rather give him to a, this other woman and have some other woman raise her child Think about that. I mean, when you read that, ladies, put yourself in that story. It's not a story. It's a real, this really happened. So put yourself in the middle of it and think about how you would feel and think about the response. See, sometimes when we think of decisions that have to be made, usually, and, and some people will do this, and be on your guard about this, because one of the things I'm learning about life and making decisions is sometimes somebody will come to you and say, we've got to do this or we've got to do that. And the Lord always encourages me to say, well, why, have you thought about a third option or a fourth option? But see, when people present to you this or that, you feel compelled to make a decision on one of those two things. And that's how they get you. But oftentimes there's another door. I'll take door number three. What's behind door number three? Well, you get an all-expenses-paid trip to the Barbados and, you know, three nights and, you know, I'll take door number three. 
Because door number three is probably the answer. This was door number three. And I love that. See, that's wisdom in action. And that's what we need, folks. That's what we need. When's the last time you prayed for wisdom? I mean, seriously. I, I would you know, be willing to say that many of us in this room haven't prayed for wisdom specifically maybe in a while. Maybe you have. But I would encourage you to pray for wisdom. Because you can gain all the knowledge in the world and it will not be enough. And I can tell you, as the pastor of this church, there have been times where I, I don't have it. Most of the time, honestly, I don't have it. I don't have it. And then God gives me wisdom about something. And it goes way beyond my knowledge. And it has to be that way. And I'm no different than you. You need that as well. Pray for, for God to give you wisdom, to give you discernment in every situation that you're going to face today. Pray that in the morning when you get up. Lord, give me wisdom today beyond my training, beyond my experience, beyond my emotions, especially beyond the emotions. Give me discernment and wisdom beyond all of these things because I cannot live without it. I can't live with just what I know. I can't do it. And maybe you'll hobble along for a while on that earthly wisdom, but there's going to come a point where you really need wisdom from on high. And it's going to make a big deal. It's going to make a big difference. And it's going to have a difference in your life and in other people's lives based on how you respond to this situation. Are you going to do it in your, in your own power, in your own wisdom, your worldly wisdom? Or are you going to rely upon the wisdom of God and escape the snare that would be coming after you if you went your way instead of God's way? It happens all the time. It's happening in Washington, D.C. It's happening everywhere. That's why we need to pray for your leaders and all everybody in authority. Paul tells us that. Pray for those in authority that God will give them wisdom. Wisdom from God. Not what they learned in Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge or Yale, but the, the wisdom that is unlearned from any of those things. All they can teach you is knowledge. But what I think many colleges are failing today is they're not, teach, they're not concerned about wisdom. You're just spitting out numbers. You're just spitting out what you've learned in a book. Well, how do you think? How do you appropriate this stuff that you're learning? They don't teach that. That's a big problem. <laughs> and we wonder why everything's such a mess. Wisdom from God changes things. And so as Sarah comes up and leads us in worship... Let's pray for that. I would encourage you tonight and tomorrow morning, just pray and say, God, give me the wisdom from on high. And read this over again and look at those passages that I had you write down and check those things out. And be encouraged because the Lord loves you, folks. And he loves me. And I, I can't, I can't I'm, I'm so excited about that, that he knows all my fail, failures and all my sin that I've ever committed. He knows yours too, and yet he loves you. He called you out of darkness when you were in darkness. And just like Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. I knew you. And I've ordained you to be a prophet of the nations, among the nations. I love God for that, don't you? Let him just encourage you tonight.
In three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it gives us the account of when Jesus was in the upper room in what we call the Last Supper, where Jesus instituted the, um, uh, the bread and the cup, signifying his body and blood on the cross. And um, you recall that Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you, and it certainly would be broken you know, when you think about all he went through. But yet the Bible says that not one bone of his was broken, but yet his skin and his muscles were torn as they abused him in the praetorium before he would come. And, and that's why he fainted literally on the Via Dolorosa, on the road to the cross, as they took that beam and they, they, they made him carry the the. Uh, patibulum, I think is what it's called. And, they, and it was probably over close to a hundred pound weight of wood. And Jesus being so faint. And yet, despite the physical sufferings, I want to encourage you that it was what happened that nobody could see. Don't want to miscount the torture that he went through. It was horrible. But many people throughout history have been crucified. Thousands of people have been crucified. Tens of thousands but one thing that Jesus did that none of them ever could even attempt to do is to take the sin of the world upon themselves and then to have God, literally God the Father, forsook his son on the cross for a time. And that's why Jesus would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, it was no mistake. Jesus knew what he was doing. And he knew he was actually doing a number of things. It was a real emotion from his heart. But he was also pointing people to Psalm 22, I believe, to encourage them that, hey, this is no mistake. This was prophesied a hundred or a thousand years prior to my birth. This event that I'm going through now was prophesied to the point of even crucifixion. They pierced my hands and my feet when crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. And Jesus' body was broken for us. And so when we take this, we acknowledge that. And we do this, and we remember the Lord's death until he comes. We remember what he did for us. And these tokens are nothing mystical about them. We don't do some kind of hocus-pocus and it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. No, these are tokens Jesus told us that. That was the case. And so let's take the bread and remembering his body broken for us. And then that same night, you remember, he passed around the cup as well. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, the new testament of my blood. And I love that Jesus had the chalice, the, uh, that goblet or whatever it was, the holy grail, <laughs> we call it. And he passed it around. Can you imagine doing that a couple years ago during the middle of COVID in a big service, which most of it was online, you know, passing around a cup. Everybody just take a sip and pass it, you know, wipe the rim and pass it around. That's what they did that night. Of course, there's only 11 of them. But his blood, he already says, this is the blood of, the new, of, of my blood, the new covenant, the new testament of my blood and in Jesus' heart, he had already done it. Even before he went to Pilate, remember, and I, hate, I don't mean to drag this out, but I just want you to understand something really interesting. When he stood before Pilate, Pilate was willing to let him go. 
And do you think Jesus was wringing his hands going, don't let me go, don't let me go. And he's like, I see nothing wrong with this man. You've brought all these charges, and Pilate knew that they delivered him up because of envy, and he had the power to let him go. But because he was a man-pleaser, he chose rather to appease the Jews, appease those who hated Jesus, and deliver him, which was against the law. We looked at that last Sunday. You cannot deliver an uncondemned man to be put to death. That was against all the laws of the land at that day. And yet he did it. He was culpable. And Jesus knew that it would happen anyway. Even though Pilate was like, I'm, I wash my hands of this and I, I see nothing wrong with this man. Jesus wasn't thinking to himself, oh, he's going to let me go. Now all the prophecies that have been fulfilled aren't going to come to pass. He wasn't even worried about it. You know why? Because he knew in advance. And he knew. He knows. He didn't make Pilate do it. Pilate did it of his own volition. But he did it for us. And that's why we take the cup. But notice he did it even before it actually happened. See, the power of a testament is not enabled until the death of the testator. Your will, your will that you have, your last testament and will, does not get applied and put into action until you die. And Jesus, before he went to the cross, said, Take this, this is the blood of the new covenant. Because in his heart, it was already a done deal. And God the Father knew that too. How great is your God? Isn't he wonderful? Let's take the cup. Praise the Lord. It was such a joy to um, be with you all tonight and just to share in the word. Loved it. And thank you, Sarah, for what a wonderful worship we had. And if you could, please, when you leave tonight after we pray, if you could just toss these in the cans next to the doors on your way out, that'd be really wonderful. And uh, let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. And um, Lord, I think as we have read through this third chapter of Kings, Lord, it, Lord, it... Um, it stirs up within me, Lord, how often I have prayed for wisdom. And Lord, I would be honest in saying that it's not something I do every day, although I should, Lord, because <laughs> I need it. And I know all of us here in this room need that, Lord. Would you put upon our hearts to, to be more purposeful in the things that we pray for daily? Lord, to pray for wisdom, to pray for opportunities to share the gospel with people around us in our workplace, wherever we're at, Lord, and to be purposeful in the things that we do. And so, Lord, bless my friends here, Lord, these people that belong to you and I belong to you, Lord. Would you bless us all tonight and protect us, Lord? Would you heal us, heal us of things we're not even aware of, Jesus, and even things that we are aware of. Would you please heal us and, and just heal our hearts, our, our minds, our bodies, our spirit, Lord, everything about us. Would you just dip us, dip us in your just wonderful grace, and just purify everything in us, Lord, our minds, our bodies, everything, and just cleanse us, Lord. And help us, in spite of anything that happens, Lord, to trust you and to love you in the midst of it, knowing that you'll be with us through all things. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.